Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Well, like you were saying, my name is Cooper Ward. I'm the high school director here at Kirk of the Hills. Um, that means I am the lead attitude adjuster here at the church. Uh, no, it's not that bad. They're, we honestly have the most phenomenal group of students, and they're a joy to work with. Uh, so, hi. How are we doing? Yeah. Uh, my life as a high school director is hearing a word or a phrase that I'm honestly not really sure of the meaning. Uh, I think that's always happened, right? Youth are coming up with their own lingo, and it's even more rapid nowadays, right? Because of the social media and how quick things spread. I'm, I'm pretty good, honestly, but sometimes I catch a phrase where I'm like, wait, slow down. You gotta, you gotta tell me what that means. So uh, I'm gonna make this as cringy as possible for the students that are in the front row. We're gonna define some youth phrases. So let's go ahead and put those up on the screen, shall we? And honestly, I can't even guarantee to you that this list is current, honestly, or that I'm going to have an accurate definition. The first one, let's see, we've got touch grass. Uh, that means you need to go outside. You've been spending too much time inside. You need to go out and, and, and ground yourself, right? Uh, riz. If you've got riz, you've got charisma. And this is usually in the context of uh, getting to swoon someone of the opposite sex, right? Yes. Uh, gas is good. That's gas, right? Uh, Bussin is also good, coincidentally, but uh, usually refers to food. Um, a situationship, you might be able to infer the meaning, right? You haven't really defined the relationship yet. There's, it's a situation. There's just something going on there. You know what I'm talking about? You ever had one of those? Especially when you were in high school? Uh, drip. Drip is uh, you're looking good. You've got good fashion. You might have, like, good sneakers on. You might have, like, a blazer or nice... You might have drip. Uh, you've got uh, cap or no cap, which is a fancy way of saying, I'm not lying or you're definitely lying, right? You'd say, ah, cap, that's a lie, that's a lie. Or I mean what I'm saying, you'd say, I mean this, no cap. And that one will never make sense to me, but you just have to roll with it. Uh, slay, slay is, you're, you're doing good, but it's often, you, when you say it, you have to get in touch with your feminine side, slay right? Snap your finger a little bit. Slay queen is off. It's often followed up with that. You've got uh, shook, which means you're very surprised. Oh, I was shook. They'll often, if you want to sound more official, you can say shooketh, right? That's not a joke either. Uh, you've got a uh, salty, which means you're just a little, you're a little testy, right? You're a little, you're a little salty. You're a little mad, upset about something. Rent-free is a great one. Oh, rent-free is a great one. You're like, you're living in someone's head rent-free, right? They're always thinking about you. That's a little silly, isn't it? How many, how many of you knew at least five of those? Only this side of the room, by the way. A few over there. With many of these words and phrases, you might have been able to assume some kind of meaning. Maybe there was some guesswork involved, some context clues, right? Uh, but realistically, it's useful and important, especially in my context, to understand what people mean, right? 
One of those phrases that Christians use that can be somewhat difficult to define is this, God is love. If you cracked open your Bible or you were reading along with us this morning, it's likely that you saw, you know, like they'll, they'll have little descriptors above sections of scripture, right? They'll, they'll name them out. It's likely that if you read your Bible or cracked it open today in front of you, it would read, God is love which is a fine statement. It is a wonderful statement. It means so much to me personally. It's a reason why I'm so passionate about what I do and and teaching the gospel and its truth to others. But what does that statement mean? What does it mean? It clearly means different things to different traditions of the faith. And realistically, if you look left and right, it might mean something different to the person sitting right next to you. So we're going to talk really quickly about what it is our culture says about love how other Christians define love, and then how Scripture defines love. Uh, So what does our culture say that love is? They might say that love is this this undeniable force and you can't choose it, right? You're pulled to another person. Or that love is love is a statement that you hear uh, a fair about nowadays, right? It states that love, right, is something that isn't really chosen deliberately or doesn't define itself, right? I think God doesn't fall in on himself, I mean, God is holy, God is self-defining, but he doesn't leave it in a nature that's, I think, ambiguous, all right? Love is love, I think, is ambiguous, right? And if, if we lean, we rely on that statement, we come to say that God is love, that means that God must be all things that love is, which means that God must be, and then we start to get inaccurate descriptions of what God is, because we're relying on our own culture and our own life experiences, I think God gives us a definition of love, right? That love isn't a self-defining phenomenon, but it is something rather divine. That one, demonstrates love in action, and two, actively does choose to love. Pastor Aaron, who was helping me prep this sermon, something that Christians say when they define what love is, he said this, that love is a cross. I think that's true. And we're going to get further into it to its definition, right? I think Dan did a great job of uh, defining that uh, last Sunday in communion when he put us all together. I love getting to take communion in response to observing the Christmas message. How amazing was that? John, however, doesn't just say God is love and then wash his hands, right? He doesn't just, just doesn't like leave us with this statement and let it to be informed by the rest of scripture that starts to talk about love, like 1 Corinthians 13, or, you know, take your pick. He's not saying an uncommon phrase and walking away. In 1 John 4, he states a specific kind of love. He gives two definitions for this love that we're going to talk about, and then I believe that he offers two responses in 1 John 4. I don't know if you know this or not. Uh, many of you in the room probably do. If you don't, that's great. First John in the New Testament is recorded in Greek. Might not be news to you. If so, great. Um, but if you know anything about Greek in the Bible, you know that there is more than one word for love, right? There is uh, eros, which is the kind of romantic, swoony, intimate love that we feel for a partner, right? You might be trying to riz someone up right? Uh, There is phileo or philia, right? Depending on how you're using the word, which is the kind of love that we feel for deep friendships, right? Like Saul and Jonathan, Jesus and John, right? Does that make sense to you? And then there is agape. Agape. Can you say agape? Mm. Agape is love that is self-giving, 
and unconditional. We're going to turn to Scripture to help us define it. Let's read again, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see in the text it shows the, the unconditional nature of God's love? Right? That's a perfect bow to just put on top of the Christmas story. That the light came into the world so that we could live through him. And also, it had nothing to do with us on our end, right? Does that humble you a little bit? I love what Aaron had to say on Christmas Eve, right? Who was present for Jesus' birth? Both wise men and shepherds. Jesus came for all of them, both the well-to-do and the meek. And I really want to impress upon you the grace that we find in the Christmas story, that God showed his love to all the earth in the incarnation of Jesus, and that love wasn't particularly partitioned or hidden or had any requirements attached. God gave, and we didn't do anything to earn or deserve it. Amen. Realistically, we didn't deserve it. We weren't, and, and I want you to just, just take this with a grain of salt and hold on to it because we're going to get there, right? We weren't worthy. The second part of verse 10 really keys in on this. It's the second way that agape love is defined right here is not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. While we're defining words and phrases this morning, that's a good one. Has anyone ever heard that term, propitiation? Yeah? All the people with MDivs just raise their hands. Um, uh, propitiation. In your Bible, I know often we read the NIV in here, you might see the word or phrase, atoning sacrifice. There was a need for an atonement, and simultaneously those made in the image of God were unable to atone. So what was God's response in love? If righteousness were a part of the law, we could, if we could atone ourselves, there would be no Christmas. There would be no Easter. So what did God do, the God who embodies love? Seeing his children in need, he stepped down to earth in humility, right? Atoning means to make a wrong right. Sacrifice means to give. And God gave. Or taken from a favorite hymn of mine, God's all-sufficient merit did what I could not. Here's the deal. Nothing of what you have, nothing what you could offer could make the God who loves, the God who gave, love you any more than he already does. Amen? God loves you so much. And that's God's agape love defined. That his love doesn't come with conditions, right? We can't qualify for it. He just says, you're qualified. And the second is that this act of love was self-sacrificing, that he gave out of himself. A God, the God of the universe, the God who made everything, you and me, the person sitting next to you, the people you love, the people you hate. He 
gave out of himself. So how should we respond to this love then? Uh, Again, I think that God offers two responses. John offers two responses to God's love. The first is to be without fear, and the second is to love as he loved. And we're going to dig a little bit deeper into to what we mean, what that means there. Um, first, I'd like you to consider your attitude towards the love that God has shown you. And I'm not saying that you have an attitude. I'm certainly not saying that uh, this is necessarily a come to Jesus moment. But in your heart, what is God doing when you observe what he's done for you? Let's go back and read scripture for a second. We're going to go to 16 through 18. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Does anyone in here understand the phrase, or have you heard it before, the doctrine of assurance of salvation? By show of hands. Again, the MDIBs raise their hands. It's great. Perfect. No, let's dig into it. This is the part of the perfection that's mentioned in the passage, right? We have God's spirit inside of us. We believe in him. God's inside of us. He's working on us. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit is convincing us, put simply, that we're justified, right? What's your attitude towards what God has done for you? Is it gratefulness? Is it curiosity? Is it being fearful or fear-mongering? Listen, you go to enough youth events, you are going to hear a bad speaker (laughs) or a crazy speaker, right? I have an absolutely wild story for you. When I was first starting my career in student ministry, I went to uh, this event called Fields of Faith in Wausau a few years back, okay? And uh, there was a a speaker who was exceptionally Baptist. And uh, no offense, I love denomination jokes, by the way. You're going to get to know that about me soon. So no offense if you're a Baptist or a recovering Baptist. But uh, he said something that I'll never forget. Uh, But in order to get there, I need you to understand something about how student pastors preach. And you actually helped me with that earlier. Sometimes when student pastors preach, we'll say something like this. Everyone say propitiation. Yeah, very. say propitiation. Yes, exactly. So we'll, we'll turn to people and, and we'll ask them to say a word back because it helps with engagement, helps people pay attention, right? Sometimes students need help paying attention. They will admit that, I, I believe, right? So it's a tactic that we use in order to uh, help with reinforcement of the lesson. This guy with zero irony in front of 900 students says, okay, everyone say die. Don't say that. Don't. Everyone say die. And like had these students fill out like this full auditorium with the language die. And I want you to know that's not good. That's not a good thing. (laughs) I was, as the kids say, shooketh. This was in reference to him teaching good old John 3.16. Can we say it together if you know it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Depending on your faith tradition, you might have said it a different way. I think we, we, 
we gravitate towards certain editions of, of editions, versions of scripture. Well done. I, I heard a lot of you recite that back to me, but I'm going to say something now that I hope sticks with you, and it's what I said to my students that night when I had a debrief why what this man said was wrong. You can't have John 3.16 without John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen? The speaker at the event was trying to communicate to the students that there was going to be an eternal separation between God and humanity. I get it. That is true. I'm not going to sugarcoat that this morning. He later read from Revelation as well that night. And I don't know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think any of what he said was untrue. But what was his attitude towards what God had done? That's the question we're trying to answer here. Our God is a God who saves, not one that condemns. Right? And I'll walk through this. We're going to go through a little bit of logic here. Okay? I had a student who previously had a problem with God's salvation and him sending people to hell. His words. It was about God's action, right? And my response, very gently, in a group of 15 kids just sitting in a circle of couches, sitting down, having a casual conversation about God, was this. Consider God's inaction. Consider God's inaction. God didn't come to condemn the world because if he did nothing, if he stayed in inaction... We were already condemned. But that is not our God. Amen? That's not our God. Our God is a God who saves, a God who gives out of himself, a God who stepped down to earth in the form of a baby because he loved us so much he wanted us to be with him forever fully reconciled. Amen? Amen. And I get the feeling of fear. I see it in students. As they learn to understand, as they grapple with the truth of the gospel for themselves. And I want you to know today that if you're here and you have an attitude towards fear, towards your own worthiness, your feel of of uncertainty, I want you to know this, that God has come to save you, and he already has. You do not stand in condemnation, but rather you stand in the love of God. And perfect love casts out fear. Amen? Christmas time is a great opportunity for this Tim Keller quote. I heard that if you preach at this church, you have to at least include one Tim Keller quote in your sermon. Uh, So I'm going to do that. Uh, When you look at what God did for you, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll change. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll change. There is a response, a change that is baked in to the love of God. Be without fear and speak a message of having no fear in the name of Jesus. Our second response is similar. It's more concise, but it is also far more challenging. We love because he first loved us. That is the, that's the end of the passage that we read. That's 1 John four nineteen, And I think it's pretty clear from the text That God helps us to love others, right? We abide in him. He abides in us. His spirit's at work in us. It's perfecting us. It's with us as we go out to love others how he loved us, right? He works on our hearts to make us more like him. 
so we can love more like him, so we can better reflect that we are made in God's image, right? But what type of love is God asking for? We love because he first loved us. What's that word for love? It's that same agape love. It's that self-sacrificial love. Will you ponder that with me for a moment? What love is God wanting me to show others? It's the same word. You go and look in a Greek version of the New Testament, and you go and look at 1 John 4.19. You're not going to find eros. You're not going to find phileo. You will find agape. That's the type of love we're to show others out of a reflection of what God has done for us. Just to put it in terms that we use around this church, how can we show agape love in being mission-mobilized, generosity-filled, and Christ-centered? What does it mean to give out of ourselves? Do you see how our, reflect, our, our reflection of God's love is such a high calling? There's a high standard to it. God calls us to the same type of love that he gave the, for us, right? So think about what God did for you. And now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may you be changed. May you be utterly convinced and convicted of God's love for you and be without fear. And may you go and show or give that same love to others. Amen.